Let's pray. Father God, that would be our prayer today that we would uh, not lift our hands to any other God, that you would be the only God we would worship. God, we all worship. I pray, Lord, that we would be worshipers of you, the only true and good God. Teach us your word now. Show us Christ. Encourage us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Convict us and challenge us. In your name we pray. Amen. Are y'all awake today? Yes. Timothy chapter 1, we've been working on our series in the book of Timothy, we call for the pastor for the church. Just to give you a quick background, uh, in case you haven't been with us, Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, so it's meant for a pastor, uh, it's also meant for the church, and so he is teaching his young protege uh, what it means to pastor, uh, he had been teaching him for quite some time, this was not Paul's first uh, teaching to Timothy by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but he had left Timothy in the church in Ephesus to correct some doctrinal issues that were occurring. Uh, and this is his first letter uh, to him in reference to that. Uh, and so he has spent most of his time in chapter 1, uh, although they wouldn't have had chapters, but I would say in the first parts of this letter, reminding Timothy uh, of what sound doctrine is. Uh, and as we learned last week, uh, how to use the law lawfully. And now we're going to pick it up in verse 12. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, uh, the holy inspired word of God says this. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointed me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed with me, or for me, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of who I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Some of you may not know that uh, one of the things, if you spent time around me, if you're close to me, you may know this, but um, one of the things that I wanted to do uh, with my life was I wanted to be a medical doctor. Now, you should all be thankful that I am not a medical doctor. <laughs> there would be, uh, I'm sure, many lawsuits against me. Um, 
you don't want an ADD guy for a doctor. Um, but I learned that in order to get into medical school, you have to have uh, good grades. And so I remember as graduating high school thinking, well, I'm an A student with a few Bs and some Cs. And uh, so I was told that I would not qualify for medical school. Uh, not long, uh, I became a police officer, and I uh, had the opportunity to be a hostage negotiator. I, I went and got trained, and they uh, give you no training, actually. They put you in a big mobile command unit in Tyler, and uh, you were put through a scenario where someone has taken hostages in a bank, I believe, uh, and then they just throw you in there, like, all right, go at it. And uh, I was selected because they all knew I was a pastor, and they thought I'd be great at it, so I got in there. Um, I got all the hostages killed. Um, so I was no longer qualified to be a hostage negotiator. So when I attempted uh, to start uh, my business and it went really, really well, uh, I decided uh, with a group of other guys that we would open a food franchise. Uh, so we started searching for franchises to open and I thought I was doing pretty well financially uh, until we got on the phone with some of these companies and some of these companies wanted you to have up to a million dollars not in net worth, in liquid cash. And they would tell me things like, I'm sorry, but you're not qualified to open a food franchise. And if you know me well, you know that I love looking at homes, um, as generally as my mother would say, homes that I cannot afford. Um, and I have found that if you look at a home that's 750 to a million dollars uh, with my current income, um, the bank will say things like, you're not qualified for that loan. <laughs> so I have learned about this qualification thing. And I think that this passage is um, has a profound teaching, although it be very simple. Now, I may not be qualified to say that because uh, I applied once for a church here in East Texas. And uh, for an administrator job, I had run a multi-million dollar company, and uh, that was gone, and so I was uh, trying to go back into ministry, and an opportunity presented itself to be an administrator of a church, not, not nearly the amount of money that I had managed before, uh, and I had ministry experience, and I submitted my resume, and they submitted a one-line response, thank you, but we find that you are not qualified <laughs> to take this church. So, uh, I mean, I'd be qualified to say this, but I think I'm qualified to say this. Um, I, I feel like I'm qualified uh, based on this scripture that uh, I am definitely qualified to hear and receive the gospel. And, and here's why I know that, because this passage teaches me that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And guess what? I am 100% confident that I am a sinner. No doubt in my mind whatsoever. And Paul is so sure of this inspired truth. He says it this way, that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And that is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners five times. In the pastoral letters and nowhere else in the Bible is this phrase heard, that this is a faithful saying. Now, some theologians believe that 
This points to an established saying or an established creed that had already begun to exist in the church. And believers would have known this phrase. They would have maybe even regularly recited it when they gathered. Or some argue that Paul is making this statement as a type of confession of faith, as the beginning of some kind of creed. But whatever the case, Paul is clearly emphasizing this truth while simultaneously reminding Timothy of this foundational, sound, doctrinal truth, which would help him to combat the false teaching occurring by some in the church in Ephesus. This statement, this this statement of truth says two things. Number one, we are sinners, depraved human beings who have committed, as R.C. Sproul would say so well, cosmic treason against the God of the universe. We are depraved people. We are. Went to Vegas once and saw it on full display. But they are no more sinful in Vegas than they are in Longview, Texas. We are depraved human beings. And left to our own devices and our own wants, we will do everything that is wrong. We are born that way. We sin naturally. No one has to teach you how to be selfish. No one has to teach you how to be rude. No one has to teach you how to have an anger problem. No one has to teach you how to be prideful. We do it naturally. Some of us are better at other ones than we are. Maybe you're more prideful than you are angry, but no doubt you are a pro at some of them. We're depraved. And the statement says this. Jesus came to rescue us. Because we are powerless to save ourselves. You don't need a Savior if you can save yourself. I learned a long time ago when I was a cop that people dial 911 because they want a cop to show up. If you don't show up in time, they will let you know about it. They will tell you things like, I'm a taxpayer and I pay your salary. And I would, you know, early on, I would apologize. Years later, I would say things like, you don't pay enough. I need a pay raise. Be glad I even showed up based on what you're paying me. That's what happens when you get a little experience. But anyway, we needed a savior. You need a savior because you are depraved and unable to save yourself. We've already learned that you can't rescue yourself by obeying the law. We covered that last week. It's impossible. You can't obey the law long enough or right enough to make yourself righteous before God. And you need a Savior. And this text tells us that Savior is Jesus. Paul understood this well because Paul had a right view of his sin. I love here in verse 15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, comma, of whom I am the foremost. That's Paul's view of his own sin. Now, why would Paul say this about himself? If you ask most pastors, they would say Paul is the guy they want to be like. Uh, Maybe I do, but I end up being like Peter most of my life. Uh, talk long before I think about things. Those of you who know me know it's true. But Paul, 
Most people want to be like Paul, but yet Paul, the writer of much of the New Testament and the church planter and the pastor, and he had a wonderful and right view of his own sin. And why would he do this? Well, I think Philippians chapter 3 gives us somewhat of a hint. In Philippians chapter 3, in verse 6, he calls himself a persecutor of the church in his former life before being redeemed. Paul persecuted the church. Though he knew the law and he knew the scriptures, he nonetheless missed Jesus and he persecuted his followers. And although we cannot prove it conclusively from the Bible, we can make a good assumption and a good case that Saul was well aware of Jesus. And that Saul, later Paul, that he would have probably even heard Jesus teach. But he rejected Jesus' claims and the claims of Jesus' followers. Now, for those of you who may be pondering the Saul-Paul thing, remember we're not talking about Saul from the Old Testament, King Saul. No, we're talking about Saul in the Bible that we find in Acts. And despite what you may have been taught in Sunday school or maybe from a pulpit, Jesus did not change his name to Paul. Uh, how many of y'all ever heard that? That's not what happened. Um, in fact, after his conversion on the road to Damascus, Paul is called Saul 11 more times. And what we know is that Saul, uh, from Acts 13.9, Saul, it says Saul was also called Paul. This is not unusual. It was common to have two names at this time. And Saul and Paul was the same guy as just his other name. But nevertheless, if you were an early church planter, the name Saul was at the top of the list of enemies of the church. Saul would have caused the hair on the back of your neck to stand up. He was as evil as you could be to the New Testament church. And here's what we find in the scriptures. In Acts chapter 7, when they are preparing to stone Stephen, they take him out of the city, according to verse 58, and they stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Stephen, the first martyr of the New Testament church, stoned with the full approval of Saul. In Acts chapter 8, it says this, And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house to house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. I don't think we, we sanitize the scriptures so much, or, or we've grown up church, we don't really hear what's happening here. Saul is ravaging the church. The church is new. And Saul is doing everything he can with great zeal to snuff out this thing called the way, which was what they called Christianity at that time. And he did it by entering house after house. And he would drag off men and women and he would commit them to prison. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God 
violently and try to destroy it. It's no doubt that when Saul is converted, just ponder this. We don't have it in the scriptures, but, but here I think you have a good part of it in Galatians chapter 1. Where it says, no doubt you've heard that there were people who eventually heard Saul preach who knew Stephen. Just ponder that for a moment. They, they knew Stephen. He preached. He was stoned to death. And Saul was the guy who approved it. And so when people said Saul's coming to town, I can assure you there was a little bit of a church disturbance. Okay, but Saul's different now. Yeah, well, y'all let me know how that works out. <laughs> I'm going to go back this way. Because Saul had a reputation in even here in chapter 1, Paul describes himself as a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Saul was evil, ravaging the church of God. But what happened to him? Well, in Acts 9, the verse that good Baptists don't like to see, this Acts chapter 9, because it goes against everything we were ever taught in evangelism. Like, nothing goes according to the evangelist type way here in Acts 9. But Saul, verse 1, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. <laughs> Just like that, Saul's converted. There is, I mean, isn't this an interesting conversion experience that there's no invitation? What? No invitation. There's no worship leader playing just as I am. There's none of that. No church service. No one standing down up front. Jesus doesn't say, take the, the man's hands next to you and pray this prayer after me. No sinner's prayer prayed. No, Jesus... Jesus himself confronts Paul, the sinner, and he rescues and redeems him and sets him on a new path. Amen. That's what happens in Acts chapter 9. Amen. And Paul's obedience to Jesus' instructions and his subsequent actions that follow shows his conversion was real. That's true. And that is why Paul said what he did in verse 12. I thank Him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Now listen, Paul wasn't saying that He judged him faithful because of something Paul had done. No, 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 no. Jesus judged him faithful because of what Jesus had done on the cross. Jesus called, and Jesus converted, and Jesus appointed him to His service as an apostle, a church planner, a pastor, and an evangelist. The work of salvation is of the Lord. Yes. And we see that clearly here in this passage. Amen. If you ask yourself why we don't have invitations here like you may have grown up, Acts 9. 
Jesus gets who he's going to get. That messed up some theology. It's okay. I'm available. Corner Bakery, Starbucks, you buy. Uh, and why do we know this? We know this because of what we see here in 1 Timothy. That Jesus came for sinners. Jesus came for sinners. Now, Paul was, according to Paul, the worst. Well, maybe is Paul simply stating how he views his own sin? Or was he actually the worst? I mean, King David might have something to say about that. King David might say, well, you know, I, I did sleep with Bathsheba and murder her husband. He might say something about that. Uh, would the Apostle Peter might argue a bit with Paul? Probably not, because Paul had to put him in his place before. But Peter might say, yeah, well, I denied Christ to his face. So is Paul saying that he actually is the worst? Or does Paul just view himself as that? And there's theologians on both sides of that aisle. What about you? Where do you put your sin at? We compare a lot, don't we? At least I'm not as simple as that. I mean, I mean I'm a sinner, but geez, that Paul guy. That would be a wrong view of your sin. Because your sin is cosmic treason against a holy and righteous God. Now Paul shifts from using his, he shifts using his sinful life as an example of those who will believe. And he says this in verse 16, but I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul's saying here, look, Jesus saved me. And if he can demonstrate his patience by not snuffing me out while I'm actually killing and imprisoning his followers, but instead he chooses to save me, then listen, Jesus can save you too. We need a right view of our sin. We are undeserving of God rescuing us. But God sent His Son, Jesus, to save sinners. And if you're here today, redeemed by Jesus, then I can assure you, if your view of your sinful life is right, that you can say with Paul that if Jesus can save me, He can save anybody. Here's what I know about me, that if you knew everything about me, you would not want me to be your pastor anymore. Some of you are like, well, I didn't, I didn't want you to be our pastor before I knew anything about you. But here's what I know about you. If I knew everything about you, I humanly probably would not want you to be a member anymore. Am I right? Aren't you glad Jesus came to raise the center? Amen. Aren't you glad that he came to rescue the sick? Because only the sick need a physician. I didn't have to go to medical school to know that. Sick people need a doctor. Not righteous people. And I'm not righteous. That's good news. 
And look at what happens when sinners who have been redeemed have a right view of their sin. When they, when they see their sin for what it is, when they, when they see who they are against the holy, righteous God, creator and sustainer of the universe, when, when they see that, when they get that right, and then they're like, and you, you came, you came for me? You came for me? And you rescued me? What happens? I'll tell you what happens. It happens in verse 17. Paul worships. Verse 17, Paul says, To the king of kings, the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul knew he was different and his lifestyle was changed. His life was being spent persecuting the church. Sin was once Paul's master. And now sin is his enemy and Christ is his master. And he sees God for who he is and he sees himself for what he has done. And he recognizes that Jesus came and rescued him. And that deserves, that God deserves honor and glory. He reminds Timothy of this. And listen, if you're a believer today, if you claim Christ, then you should be a worshiper of Christ. And Paul tells Timothy, be careful. Listen to this charge I've charged you with. This charge of keeping sound doctrine. Using the law lawfully. And listen, Timothy. Remember that Jesus came to rescue sinners. Don't get shipwrecked from these truths. You must wage the good warfare. You must hold to the faith and keep a good conscience. And this requires Timothy making decisions every day to put away sin and to walk in the righteousness given to believers by Jesus. And some of that church, some in the church in Ephesus had not done that. Paul listed them by name for the church to be reminded. They have gone off into false doctrine. Now, Paul does not expound on the error. Of these two men, Timothy obviously knew who they were, and probably the church at Ephesus knew who they were. Second Timothy chapter two gives us a little bit more detail. Uh, we find that they had been teaching that the resurrection had already occurred, and they destroyed the faith of some. And so Paul, uh, in that chapter, says that their doctrine is like gangrene, that it's spreading corruption and it destroys life. And it's interesting that their word that we see in verse nineteen. As we translate rejected as a nautical term, meaning to be thrown overboard. And these two men had been thrown overboard. They had gone against sound doctrine. And Paul properly handled them by sending them out of the church. It's what you do with false doctrine. Right. People who preach it and teach it. That's right. Get them out of the church. Amen. Paul. That happened more often. Well, I won't go there. It's a rabbit trail, but false doctrine should be confronted. Amen. It should be confessed. Yes. And if it won't be confessed, then we need to get them out of here. Amen. Because Paul did that. He turned them over to Satan. That's right. Put them back out into the world, out of the protection of the believers. That's right. In a hope that they would repent right. and come back. Listen, church. You hold me accountable. Amen. 
If you hold our elders accountable, the elders hold each other accountable, and we must be careful with our doctrine to hold what Scripture teaches. And one of these doctrines is that Jesus came to save sinners. Because there's no other way to be rescued. And once rescued, redeemed people worship the one who saved them. And may that be the heartbeat of our church. That our church exists to spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to sinners. So they may be redeemed and become worshipers of God. That's clearly the application for the church. Listen, I love doctrine. I love our men's ministry. I love sitting for hours on hours, pondering doctrine and talking theology and debating. And, and I'm not nearly as intelligent as other people who do that, but I enjoy it. I enjoy it a lot. But in all of that, in all of our camps, and all of the lines that we draw and all of the groups that we fall into, we should never lose sight of the most profound theological truth of all time. And that is Jesus came into the world to rescue sinners. That is profound. But that is the message of the church. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've come from. Jesus came for you. And may we faithfully proclaim that message. And the reason you sit here today redeemed is somebody, flawed though they may be, got that part right. And you heard the gospel. What's the application for us as individual believers? Well, if you're anything like me, even though you may be a believer, you still sin and you fail. And you do things that you know are against the character of God. You're convicted by the Holy Spirit of God. But sometimes the enemy whispers into your ear that you're worthless. And that you're a pathetic failure. It happens to me. It's never happened to you. I love reminding Satan, yes, that's who Jesus came for. That's right. He came for me. He came for me because I needed a Savior. So I confess that sin. And I walk away from that sin because Jesus is better. You need to hold on to that truth. Never ever fall into this idea that somehow you were good enough for Jesus to get you. Or that Jesus picked you. This is not like flag football in middle school where guys like me were the last to get picked and they were picked by like, uh, I guess we'll take Jason. <laughs> they weren't picking based on talents. Jesus rescued you because you were a sinner. You deserved nothing. And Jesus rescued you anyway. Remember that. Similarly, similarly, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, and you would have this thought, I hear what you're saying. I hear that Jesus came to rescue sinners. And I've heard you say that you are one, but listen, you have, you have no idea the things I'm talking about. 
Jesus would not rescue me. I want you to hear me say it. And I would pray, and I do pray, that you who have ears would hear that Jesus came to rescue you. Amen. If you know that you need rescuing, you turn to Christ, you repent, and you believe, you recognize your sin, you recognize it has separated you from God, and that Jesus is the solution, that He lived the life you could never live, that He died on the cross in your place, and that He takes your sin and gives you His righteousness, and in that conversion and in that great exchange, you are made holy before God. That's good news. And that can happen for you today that's never happened. And you don't need to come and take my hand. You don't need Keith to play 19 verses while I coach you down the aisle. No, no, no. What you need to do, I've heard Mike Curry say a long time ago, when people get thirsty on a hot field and the water shows up, nobody ever has to play just as I am for people to come drink water. When you know you're thirsty, you just come and get the water. Amen. And if you need rescue, Jesus is saying, I'm here to rescue you. Amen. Just turn to me. Turn to me. And I'll save you. Amen. And then, then maybe you'll have the opportunity, maybe you should have the opportunity, to understand what John Owen had to say right before he died. I've used this before in this church, but it's just one of my favorite stories. John Owen, the former slave trader, Converted to the Christian faith, the writer of the great hymn, Amazing Grace. At 82, dying, whispered to a friend, my memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things. That I am a great son, but that Christ is a great Savior. You are a great sinner. Christ is a great Savior. And how could we not but worship a God who rescues us when we don't deserve to be rescued? Oh, that we would fall in love with Jesus. That we would see our sin for what it is. And we would see Jesus as the great Savior. Worship happens naturally after that. It just flows from us. Keith, if you come, we're going to spend some time in meditation and worship. I'm always here if you want to talk to me. I don't ever want you to say, because I don't say we don't have invitations like you may have traditionally grown with, but I'm not here to talk. I'm always here to talk. So are other elders, other staff members. But you don't have to wait for me, brother or sister. Do what Jesus said and what the Bible says over and over again, repent and believe. Repent and believe. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is drawing you and your confession is sincere that God will rescue you and your life will never be the same again. You may struggle with sin, but it will never be your master. Because you have the power through the Holy Spirit to overcome sin. Pray with me now. Lord God, I pray that we would have a right view of our sin. That we would say with 
Paul, that we are the foremost. Lord God, that we would be amazed that you would come and rescue us. We are undeserving, God. Undeserving. So I thank you for coming to rescue me. Thank you for changing my life and setting me on a different path. And I know that other believers in here echo that even now as we pray. And I pray, Lord, that there would be those here who may have never heard this message. Or maybe for the first time their ears have been opened by the power of the Holy Spirit. God, they would respond in faith. And their lives would never be the same again. And that one more worshiper would be added to the kingdom. We love you, Jesus. Help us learn to worship. In your name we pray.